0: Support for Under the Radar comes from Well With, All. Well With All believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart
1: health to your daily regimen. 20% of Well With All's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Well With All.
2: Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered.
0: It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering these new faces of Boston.
2: You may not be looking for a particular
3: story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the Radar means ahead of the curve.
4: It's also perspectives. How does this particular story
1: affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, the Justice Department says it's illegal alien, not undocumented. Top military posts are out of reach for Latinos, and a study reveals a Boston public school policy for equal opportunity is not quite equal. It's our Latinx Roundtable. Later in the show, an encore of one of our favorite segments, the women who took Rosie the Riveter's slogan to heart, they did do it.
3: a can do more than a can do. the Riveter.
1: We're repeating last summer's segment celebrating the women who left housework for labor jobs at the Charlestown Navy Yard during World War II. But first, joining me from the studio to discuss the latest Latinx news, Julio Ricardo Varela, digital editor for the Futuro Media Group, co-host of the In the Thick podcast, contributor to NPR's Latino USA, and founder of the Latino Rebels website. Welcome back, Julio. Hey, Callie. And also with me, Marcella Garcia, bilingual journalist and editorial writer for the Boston Globe. Long time no see, Marcella. Thank you for having
3: me. (laughs) Long
1: time. (laughs) Glad to have you. I know. Well, let's start with this uh, study uh, about the inequity in uh, Boston public schools. Uh, This is school assignment. Uh, As a piece by Yaru Miller from the Bay State Banner uh, says, this is five years after the Boston schools switched to a neighborhood-based assignment system and four years after the report was due. And what they have found is that uh, from an equity analysis report, small reduction in the distances students travel to school, less access to top-tier schools for students in Black and Latino neighborhoods, and ding, 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 a small but statistically significant increase in segregation. Your response?
0: Um, well, you know, yeah, this report had been a long time in the making. Mm-hmm. They, I guess the research is needed to accumulate data, um, you know, over a period of time to come up with an analysis, and now that it's out, shouldn't surprise no one that while well, things didn't get, you know, worse in terms of what it was before or what the system that we had before, obviously this policy didn't do what it was supposed to do. There's been a lot of finger pointing and saying, well, uh, Boston public schools, uh, you know, last week there was some reporting around busing, for example, mm-hmm. or the huge transportation cost in within the, the budget in, in the Boston schools. And I think that's just a red herring. I mean, the the real problem here is, which, again, shouldn't surprise anybody, is that there's only um, a very limited amount of quality schools. And so, therefore, the competition for those seats is really, really high. And who gets those seats? Mm. So that is the problem. The problem is not busing. The problem is not, you know having you know getting rid of or diminishing transportation costs to give it no the problem is that we still don't have enough quality schools for everyone and again the most you know the hottest seats the seats that in in the most demanded schools go to you know those parents or those um you know families that are able to advocate for the kids more so again you know the solutions are perhaps not clear, but I think we should start by identifying that. And I think the report, if you read the report, that's one of the, um, you know, uh, conclusions that these researchers have. Like, it's th- th- there's just aren't enough mm-hmm. quality schools for everybody.
1: Well, we don't know what uh, our former superintendent would have had to say about this because he's not here. That's uh, Tommy <laughs> Chang. Um, we have an interim superintendent, yeah. and uh, Laura Peril has made... Um, really urban schools, her focus in her independent uh, organization. So I don't know if that bodes well or not, but the bottom line is that uh, the majority of students are black and Latino, Julio. And so if you uh, listen to what uh, Marcella said about, well, there's not enough good schools, so what, what are we saying then? We're saying that there's mm-hmm.
2: a culture in, in BPS that, to be honest with you, we've never been able to tackle as a city. And and Marcella's right. If you have access and if you advocate you know, people that are going to be in better socioeconomic situations are going to have more time to spend with their kids, who are going to more time to advocate. And that just happens to be non-black, non-Latino mm. pe- families. Mm. We've created Like, Boston has created this. And I, I, I think there's a couple of problems. You know, I, this is where I get, you know, my wife's a school committee member in Milton, Massachusetts, and she got elected. Right, and I know that not like, appointed to be clear like the is, Boston, School and I committee. know that yeah, we used to have elected officials mm-hmm. in Boston, but mm-hmm. and since busing because they were afraid, you know, since the busing crisis, maybe we should appoint them because then you won't get such crazy like ideas. But I do think it's time to rethink. Well, <laughs> but let me hear me out before my, because it's not reflective of the city. I do think like there just has to be a better way for voices. To advocate for change in BPS, I don't think the current system works as it is, as it does because I think it's too politically driven. Right, and I think the mayor has way too much influence on education, and and it's a and people have simplified education because it becomes a political issue and it doesn't become an issue to educate kids and make the youth of Boston strive as much
1: as they can. All right, Marcel, I'll let you have the last word on this. Well,
0: I I. I disagree that the that the solution is to bring back an elected school committee. I agree that parents of color need to have a bigger voice, but we may be at a point that we have to rethink what that platform should be. Because what would happen if we go back to an elected school committee? Guess who would be elected as school committee members? The parents right now that are the loudest. They are the ones who would be elected. And yes, I agree that obviously the system is here in Boston is that the mayor has a lot of power. And so maybe there's there's a This is a time to rethink, you know, how parents should be getting involved in schools. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, the old school committee meeting is is already... um you know, obsolete for, mm. for parents of color. Maybe we should be get, thinking of ideas of how to reach them and how to get them more involved in the system because obviously this is not working. I agree that they need to have more of a say and, you know, maybe the, the, maybe it's a hybrid. Maybe you add a couple of seats in the yeah, school committee I, I mean, meeting, a, mm, you know, something that is not appointed different. by mm-hmm. the, 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 the mayor. The mayor has way but, too much, and also way too much power. because of that, because the school, because the mayor appoints the school committee members, yeah. There's you have to add a layer of oversight. I agree with that. Um, and, you know, maybe it's a member for the parent community, maybe. Yeah. So something like that. But, but we mm-hmm. definitely have to rethink that structure. Agreed.
1: All right. We'll be revisiting that, I am sure. Let me go to uh, the recent uh, meeting of the uh, NAACP. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is the annual meeting. And uh, the NAACP uh, determined that it would support Puerto Rico's um, statehood effort and all kinds of blowback happened. So first, here are officials of the NAACP declaring its support for Puerto Rico's admission as a state after Governor Ricardo Roseo's remarks at the 2018 NAACP National Convention in San Antonio, Texas, earlier this month.
2: Ladies and gentlemen,
1: let us confirm to the governor of Puerto Rico that the NAACP strongly
2: affirms the position that Puerto Rico should gain
1: statehood immediately. Yes. Well, Julio, there is all kinds of wrong with that, which you are on record for having stated <laughs> in were, many of the articles what, yes, responding yeah, to this. I am on record. <laughs> yes. yes. So you, explain Cali. uh why uh this is a bad move. It feels uh, you know from the outside it might look like support.
2: Well, it, how best to say it, it's complicated. You know, it's like a Facebook relationship status sometimes. Um, It's not that simple. I don't want to get into the weeds about statehood for Puerto Rico, but there's serious, you know, if you look at the last couple of years, there's serious questions about whether it's the will of the people. And Ricardo Rosello, who has gotten a lot of prominence since the hurricane, so Mm -hmm. he gets in front of CNN um, until people know him. Um, he is the head of the pro statehood party like people need to understand that their parties in Puerto Rico are not like Democrats and Republicans they're basically associated by the political status so of course Ricardo Roselló's administration hmm. one of his biggest campaign platforms is to try to get statehood into you know the union so what their strategy is they've created this shadow congress where they have sent these like fake representatives right. and they're actually reaching out to national civil rights organizations and the idea of like equality and being a second class citizen, if you think about it from a civil rights perspective, like that's a good like mm. if you go to the NAACP mm. and be like, hey, we're second class citizens, too. We face discrimination. Mm. Maybe this is something you should look into. It has, you know, it has resonance. Itself. Yes, it has resonance. But a couple of days after that speech, the NA- NAACP got so much backlash from actual Puerto Ricans, mostly Afro-Latino Puerto Ricans, Afro-Puerto Ricans, because there's first of all there's serious question about whether statehood is a viable option for Puerto Rico, but also the whole issue of race in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. If you're good, like the, the point that a lot of my friends were saying, and a lot of um, you know, Afro-Puerto Ricans were saying when telling me was this is not about statehood. This is about colonialism and mm-hmm. how race and, and how poverty and and if you really care about black Puerto Ricans on the island, maybe you should look into, like, issues of classisms and other things that the NAACP actually does, like, in terms of speaking out, like, voter rights and and access. So I think they got caught off guard. I'll be honest with you, I've tried to talk to them for the last week to kind of get a clarification of what their position is, because they rescinded it, Mm -hmm. and then statehooders were like, no, they didn't, and it's really confusing. They've kind of gone radio silent about this. Well, uh,
1: a number of people, there was one board member who is a Puerto Rican Latino, and she resigned, yeah. saying wow. this is embarrassing because yeah. uh, this uh, indicates a lack of understanding of history and context, which would have led to not making this decision. Marcella, you want to respond? Well, yeah, you would think that the NAACP
0: being you know the organization that it is would have perhaps you know made its homework a little mm-hmm. better or at least you know, under at least you would expect them to understand the nuances of, of this. I don't even know. I actually was wondering, and I didn't have time to do the reporting, but is there a, an, an NAACP chapter in Puerto Rico?
2: Uh, there is not a local one. Well,
0: maybe that's where they should start with. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. that's the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right, like a- engage yeah. the the mm-hmm. you know the Puerto Ricans mm-hmm. in, in a more meaningful way and, the, and then, you know, come up with, you know some uh, policy that will definitely advance, you know, or, or contribute to their progress. Um, you know whether it is through statehood or whatever, or through civil rights yeah. uh, support. But I mean, I think that would be, I mean, if you well, ask me, that would be the, that would have been a more natural place or fighting to begin racism with. in Puerto right. Rico. Exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. Because yes. people
2: to understand locally. Yes. Like yes. people that you know, if you look at Puerto Rico or in Latin American countries in general, p- white. People are in charge. Mm-hmm. Are people in positions don't realize of power. how
0: classist right. <laughs> right. Latin American exactly. society Based is. On race. It right. is insane. Yeah. It is insane. People don't realize that. Every time I go to Mexico, I'm reminded of that, and and it is like, Jesus, you know, people, you, you know, we have not made enough progress, and mm-hmm. you know, it's little by little, like, little steps here, little steps there, but. It, it is insane still how prevalent. Right,
2: and there's Afro-Puerto Ricans that, that were saying, if you're going to express solidarity with Puerto Rico, can you help me in the racial yeah, struggle exactly. issue? Okay. Anyway.
1: History right. and context. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Julio Ricardo Varela of the Futuro Media Group and the In the Thick podcast and Marcella Garcia of the Boston Globe, and this is our Latinx roundtable. So good news in that the uh, delivery man... Uh, People will remember this story a couple of weeks ago. uh, His name is Pablo. Via Vicencio. I know you'll say it better. That was <laughs> pretty was good. That, was,
3: I, that I, was not was bad. Like, that was pretty good, That's, you, a, tough one. That's okay, a tough one.
1: Okay, thank you. Yeah, it's a tough one for us, too. Yeah. <laughs>
0: okay. In
1: anyway, he was delivering a pizza at an army base in Brooklyn, and he was detained, um, and they discovered, well, he had overstayed his uh, deportation requirement at some point, but he's married to a U.S. citizen. He has U.S. kids, uh, not criminal, all the stuff. Anyway, big protest, And now he's been released. So let's hear him uh, speaking to reporters after his release.
2: It's immense. I'm so
1: happy. What's it like to see your daughters?
2: Oh, my God. (laughs) I love you. you.
1: Well, this is, you know, right in the middle of uh, uh, moments after the firm deadline for the u.s to return kids to their parents mm-hmm. the ones who came seeking asylum so this is part and parcel of all of the changes that we've seen in uh immigration policy uh, he still has to fight use everything that he's got according to this article to fight for his status as a legal citizen uh, but he was on the path to doing that he's you know that's one of the reasons why it was so weird that he got picked up
2: right mm-hmm. and and the story here's the thing about the story he delivered pizzas to the military base before.
1: Right. Like Many times. Many times. So, mm-hmm. like,
2: why suddenly does he get questioned? Um, the other thing that this... I don't know if people understand, but I, I know Boston... I don't know if Boston has this, but I know New York has it. They have a, a city ID. And one of the oh, things yes. that... Um, yes, that's right. One yeah. of the things that the, the mayor... You know, they were, the city of New York was trying to say, like, well, if you get a city ID, you're going to be fine, because at least, you know...
0: It will be accepted by... It will by. be accepted <laughs> by local, when you're looking for yeah, a local yeah.
2: thing.
1: Right.
0: So that...
2: There's a lot of like undocumented immigrants that have city ID and I've talked to them that mm. like they were freaking out because yeah. yep. all of a sudden they're like, okay, maybe the city of New York does not cannot help me. Mm-hmm. But you know this does speak to the bigger issue of of what's happened the last the last month. Mm-hmm. I do think we're seeing a turning point in in, in, in what way in, in more sympathy mm-hmm. to these stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, I live in suburban Massachusetts yeah. outside of Boston. I live in Milton. When I start see, when when people who don't follow the immigration debate who are all of a sudden coming up to me because they know that's the work that I do mm-hmm. start going, "Wow, like I heard about the pizza delivery man." Like 6 7 years ago similar stories were happening. No one was paying attention. Mm-hmm. And I think like we are at this sort of like tipping point where at least people are starting to understand that these type of policies which have been going on for for decades in the end there's a They're questioning the morality of it. Mm, and mm-hmm. so, yes, there's politics, but I think, like, people listen to that video. That's a dad who missed his kids. That's it. Right. You know, you know what I mean? Right.
0: Marcella? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's a silver lining of, of this, this administration. It's unfortunate that things had to get so bad, you know, that people started paying attention. But the reality is that, yes, they, they are paying attention now. Um, the city ID topic is interesting as a matter of policy. Boston actually did try to do this. There was zero traction and zero. But there's a national
1: one we all have to do, though, right? Isn't no, a, no, no.
0: no. Oh. So this is yeah. a municipal ID mm. that basically, yeah. you know, yeah. in fact, New York did it did it in a way that precisely because you didn't want to single out immigrants mm-hmm. just having this ID, that it added so many benefits to it, like you you can have access to the museums right. for free mm. to incentivize people, you know, just. Mm regular residents, not just immigrants, uh, getting it so that it wouldn't be a thing that would identify single-handedly an, an immigrant, right? And I think it was one of those policies that people before was, you know, it was very radical and on the fringes. And, and now, you know, I think that we should probably take a second look. You know, I don't know if you remember, but a couple of weeks ago, the Boston City Council was... Mm-hmm had a hearing about allowing legal immigrants yes. to vote. Right. I think that this is a much more interesting and perhaps effective idea as a policy matter to give or to offer to the citizens, of, uh, to the residents of Boston. The idea of the city uh, ID. Yes, of the, the, yeah. the city ID. Yes, uh, and idea. again, it was, it was pushed for a while. It was when um, Felix Arroyo was the Health and Human Services mm-hmm. Secretary at the City of Boston. And then the idea, get, you know, got nowhere. But but it's true. I mean, he was doing the right thing. He had that idea. He had been using it fine, you know, because that's the that's the thing. It's supposed to, you know, present you with you know validity and and, and you know a level of of
1: um, security that these people don't have. And, and we should and also say,
0: less and less. We
1: should say that uh, when you're in process of trying to finalize your legal status right. here. Yeah. It's forever. It takes forever. Which is one of the problems that keeps coming up. You don't have
3: nothing.
2: What are you going to bring? Like, yeah, you that's know, what I right. can't stand. Yeah. Like, I, when people say, "Like, well, do it the legal way, it's like, people are. Mm-hmm. like, yeah. and, and even with the separate, even what's happening at the border where it's like, right. do it the legal way. It's like, guess what, people?
0: They are doing U.S. It. immigration
2: yeah. law allows people to come and claim asylum. Right. And and say, like, so they are doing it the legal way. Right. But that that has just been lost because I think it's so much easier, obviously, to blame and to fearmonger and to label and to dehumanize, and but then I go back to that video. Yeah, it's like it's right. a dad yeah. who missed his kids,
1: mm-hmm. and now
2: he that, that the emotion of that just it 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 breaks me up a little bit.
1: Well, we've been talking about military tangentially with uh, Pablo's case, but let's talk about it uh, more uh, broadly uh, in this new study that uh, Latinos are not reaching top military positions. And one of the guys that uh, is cited in this piece says, is systemic and structural but not an issue of racism. I'm really curious to know. I
0: literally laughed out loud when (laughs) I read that sentence. I'm like, dude, that's exactly the problem. (laughs) The fact that you are not diagnosing this issue correctly. Of course it's systemic and institutional racism. Mm -hmm. I mean, how else can you... It's not a pipeline issue, obviously. Yeah. He's, he's also admitting that, you know. Then what is it? Right. It's, you know, it's years and years of not addressing this this problem. And it just gets... I mean,
1: the numbers are stark. And and we should say the numbers of enlisted uh, Latinos is huge. It That's has, what I'm saying. It's has, not a pipeline and problem. And has increased. They are there. Well, so they are been in the military. They're rising. Right. They should but, be able to rise. Some be. people need yeah. to
2: remember, yeah. like, when... The military, you know, America, when they were looking at, I'll just take the example of Vietnam, Hmm. they weren't even classifying who was Latino or of Mexican descent or of Puerto Rican descent. The U.S. Armed Forces has always, it it never really has taken that into account. Right. So now when you start, and and here's the other thing about this, it's such a hidden history. I don't think Hmm. even people remember. It's like, there's going to be a a television show about Mm. Mexican-Americans in World War II, Mm and then you have the the the, the boricaneers who like mm-hmm. the puerto ricans that fought mm-hmm. in the korean war. So there's this long history of like latin, you know, latinos fighting in, in the armed services but it's it's been a lost history because it has been structural racism in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Yeah. So don't like for me to see this and go it's screaming why are you not facing this with a little right. bit more honesty? Like just be honest.
0: Yeah, and and also it, it is such an easy policy to just institute. Right. Just start counting them in the, in you know, take into account, mm-hmm. like, don't just do diversity and lump everyone. I Which mean, is what they're doing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so For they're taking years. anybody yeah. who's, you know, yeah. right. not
1: white and putting them in one big, huge Why category you, and they have no. Right. I mean, that cent, is such
0: you know, a, it's, I mean, it may be bureaucratic, whatever, but it's such an easy policy yeah. to institute. Let's at least start counting them, you know, the right
1: way. It's, So here are the facts for people who uh, need to know these facts, which is kind of stark. 37 highest-ranking officers in the military, those are four-star generals generals in the Army, Air Force, and Marine Corps, and admirals in the Navy. 32 are white men, two are white women, two are black men, one is an Asian-American man. The next highest rank: three-star generals and vice-admirals. Slightly more diverse, according to the data from the Pentagon. Out of 144 officers, 115 are white men, 7 are white women, 13 are black men, and 3 are black women. Okay, the list is completed by two Asian American men, one Pacific Islander man, one man with unknown ethnicity, one Asian American Hispanic woman, and one Hispanic man. So I don't wait,
2: dude. Sorry. I'm just no, saying No, and,
1: and <laughs> so I was going to say this
0: go. is not a problem also for Latinos, also for African Americans. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, it's it's across the board. How can it you is. say that that's not racism? I mean, All right,
1: well, there with you a go. straight
0: face. I now,
1: know. speaking of language, the Justice Department has just issued a memo instructing US attorneys' offices not to use the term undocumented immigrants and instead refer to someone illegally in the US as an illegal alien. Uh, this was a conversation I thought Chewed over a long time ago, and you know, done with. But here we are back again.
0: Well, I think it's a it's it's a profound change with you know bigger implications that people realize. I mean, this is just th- this isn't semantics. This isn't just semantics, right? And it's a conversation that should be brought in, you know, also. I mean, the first thing that I thought when I saw this, I'm like, wow, okay, you're putting this as a policy. But also, look at news organizations. Look, you know, Take a look at the New York Times. Take a look at the Washington Post. They, you know, The AP actually changed this policy a couple of years ago and said, we're not saying illegal immigrants. And it immigrants. took a couple of years. Mm-hmm. It the a couple it of years. Wasn't
2: years like, and it like, was oh, the ad- AP just woke right, up. Then, like, right, right.
0: And, and in the Globe, I'm happy to say that we don't use illegal immigrants. Um, but the New York Times has refused to make that change. And so I think this puts into... Um, th- this highlights why it is important that news organizations also do not contribute to this narrative of criminalization and dehumanization of immigrants that has been going on for a long time. So when the government is instituting it, you know, it's it also, you know, it sort of like takes the work you know way back. It's like. Now now, what's the hope, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it, and so I think it would be amazing. It would be an incredible statement if more news organization would be like, no, with this, th- we're not doing this.
2: And Sessions, people need to understand the history of Jeff Sessions. That's true. Being part of the very extreme anti-immigrant lobbyist movement in D.C. and
0: For years. Pe- right? For years.
2: So if people really want to, like, do a little research, and I've written about this, uh, they need to look at, like, Organizations like the Center for Immigrant Studies, uh, Numbers USA, FAIR, you know, that's called FAIR, and they're all part of this, uh, they're known, there's a founder named John Tanton that came out in the 80s and the 90s, and it's sort of this dehumanization and the use of words like illegal aliens like that. You know, you see people like Stephen King, representative out of Iowa or like Sessions like there is a faction in the Republican Party that's sort of been lobbied by this like restriction, no immigration, low immigration movement that has been lobbied for The last 20, 30 years, and I think, you know, even you hear some of these voices on National Public Radio now. They become like, you know, the Mark Krikorians of the world and the Jessica Vaughns, Yeah. And that's where this is coming from. Mm -hmm. So do not be surprised. You know, Stephen Miller, who worked for Jeff Sessions, they are of this group. So they will always see, you know, they... So when you look at the if you look at the language of places like Center for Immigration Studies and you look at Numbers USA and you look at their immigration policy and I I encourage people to do this. because I've done reporting on this. It is almost word for word at times of what the Trump policy is right now.
0: Yeah. And, and so
1: this is the wing. This is the know, wing. And just, like just who, let me sorry. say that Stephen Miller, just for people who yeah. are not uh, don't remember, is the architect of the zero tolerance right. immigration right. program. That mm-hmm. triggered the separation right. of families mm-hmm. at the
0: border. But people like Julia and me who have been following this yeah. this for years, for years, you know, it was considered by the mainstream media. Um, such a radical and infrin- on the fringes, you know, wing of the party. And mm-hmm. right now it's. You know, it's legitimate, not only is legitimized and validated, but this is what this is the policy of the government. Right. And your point about
2: media. And so like The New York Times and The Washington Post, um, they are still trying to find this like, well, this is the balance. to The other thing. Mm -hmm. When, in fact, Mm -hmm. if you really start looking at these groups, you are dealing with fringe extremist groups. And they have now become the mainstream policy of the Republican Party. That's a fact. Like, that is a fact. And so the Department of Justice right now is looking at every immigrant as a criminal.
4: Legal (laughs) or illegal, illegal? by the way. Like, you're a gang
2: member. Like, that is is the philosophy of the Department of Justice right now.
1: Well, I will say, just to put a button on this, that Jeff Sessions, uh, when he was in Congress, was the only person in Congress to oppose legal and illegal yeah. immigration. Well, the, he was getting no one lobbied. would stand up no, with him and, at the yeah, time. He was being lobbied by yeah. these groups, but, but he, he was vocal you, about you, it. Right. Yeah.
0: It, t- it tells <laughs> just, you that yes. he was willing to go on the record when he was considered yes. such. And you know, this is not the only thing. This is just another example. Yeah. But what's coming? It's even more frightening. You know the, um, you know the elimination of birthright citizenship, for example. That's yes. coming, and that's going to become huge, and that's going to become a policy. And people are not ready for that. Mm. You know, just as we are taking away. Uh, the citizenship of naturalized citizens. Yes, yeah, so let's talk about yeah, yeah, I Yeah, mean, let's the, talk about this nice transition. Perfect segue. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> well, nice transition. You know, it's, you know, th- this, again, it's been reported that USCIS, which is the agency that, that deals with citizenship applications and naturalizations, now created a task force to. Um, Take away the the, the citizenship of, of
1: of people who have lied, or
0: and which is a process that I guess had been in place before. Well, I want to be
1: clear that this piece by Masha Gessen was about the lying was uh, particular to uh, homosexuality. Yeah, that well, was Do you that say so that you are homosexual, right. or you say no? So, so she first you of know, all did the application. Yeah.
0: I just became a citizen, by the way. You know, in April. So you you know I'm familiar with the process. Whatever, and 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 the the, the application has become much more. You know. Um, complicated, and yeah. longer, and they yeah. ask you all these very, very generic questions, you know, about crimes and this and that. And Masha Gessen in her piece, you know, describes how when she became a citizen, the process was, you know, maybe more, you know, simplified, and mm-hmm. she didn't lie. But then now with this task force, basically anything goes, right? And they can take away your naturalization. And so the one thing that I, I remember a lot of things about about my my ceremony, for example. It was so moving. I did not expect to be moving. First of all, they had us wait for like three hours, which I did not appreciate. But no one was going to complain. Everyone was just like sitting there. And, you know, there's the judge comes in that, you know, the sort the swearing in. But they also get the, the judge also gives a speech. Right. And they talk about the one line that was very, very powerful. I truly believed, you know, um, is. Your citizenship is no different than mm-hmm. any other citizenship. Just because you're a naturalized citizen, doesn't mean that you are in a different class. Or this completely <laughs> erases that. Right. You know. It. it and that's what. And that was never us. a question. And that now they're a question. they're talking you know, about you... making
2: it a policy. Well, I think <clears> it leads <relates throat> to the the bigger issue of like being foreign in right. the United <laughs> States now. You like, never
0: stop being foreign. Right.
2: You are coming in and into this country and you're not from this country and you're threatening the am- right. the American way of life automatically Guys, yeah I'm telling you this is it, this is like a numbers USA like mm. textbook playbook from the right. 80s and the 90s and, and it's just become policy but I think it's this whole look. you know you're not good enough like right. that's what it is oh yeah. we're gonna make you a citizen but and guess what we can take it away from you and so like no one's talking about someone who was born in the United States is like we'll take away your citizenship Like in the middle of like Iowa, wherever, and I think that's a really dangerous conversation that that we're not having about. A lot of
1: people don't know about this new policy, but I think it's going to come to come to light a bit more, particularly around the census issue. So that we'll see more about that. So we'll be seeing some of that. I want to close out with. I'd like a uplifting story because we can drag all ourselves (laughs) drag ourselves down in the ground. What about this Muscaro family in Eastie um and they have been doing a lot of building and just got honored there. Uh, this is in East Boston. Uh, the mayor's office of economic Development has been supporting them through the main streets project. Do you guys know this family And
0: I don't, but yeah. I've heard of them. And I actually want to do I want to give a shout out to the city. It doesn't mm-hmm. happen to all of them, but I think, they deserve the credit here with this program. Um, actually, last year, I have a friend who is a business owner in East, East She has a spa, and they were they were honored by this program. And it was such a great thing um, for them to go through. The mayor came, you know, took a picture mm-hmm. with them, and he does this in every... in every. I mean, this is not a Walsh initiative. It's been, you know, because mm-hmm. it comes through the main city, uh, the main street programs. But they go to Jamaica Plain, they go to Rossendale, and they do this. And I think it's a great way to highlight... Local businesses mm-hmm. and and in the case of Eastie, I mean, all of them are immigrant families, yes. right? So and, it's and really interesting. Yeah, yeah. and so uh, I again, I do not know the Mosqueda family, but but yeah, it's it, it it totally is one of these little programs that people don't know about. But when it happens to you as a business owner, it's a huge deal. I mean, my friends were psyched and. Taking pictures with the with the you know with the mayor and and so it's a recognition you know to to what they do well, they and their clearly, contributions. Yeah, they've
1: co- clearly contributed a lot uh, to exactly. commercial building. Do you right. know them? Have you heard of them before? I haven't heard of them, you? but
2: I know. Like I, I echo Marcel's sentiment. One of the things that I got out of this was in reading the story. It's like it's in the Easty Times. It's <laughs> super hyper local. Right. And I sit here and I'm like, like where's the ribbon cutting? Like on you know where where do we see this on on the local news? Yeah. Like, because here's a perfect example of. A hardworking like family that's like we want to invest in this city we we aren't you know like we're we're everything that donald trump says we are like like we (laughs) aren't right like this is who we like and it's an opportunity i think to show the changing face of the city and and to see it limited just in like a hyper local Mm -hmm. story like I, i i sit here and i'm like wow this is an amazing story this is real boston this needs to kind of be elevated yeah. to the bigger conversation, especially, now, right, especially right. now in the now right. in this day and age.
1: Well, we just did it, so thank you very much. Yeah, there you <laughs> go, Callie. <laughs> thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Oh, Thanks, for Callie. Having us. Julio Ricardo Varela is the digital editor for the Futura Media Group, co-host of the In the Thick podcast, contributor to NPR's Latino USA, and founder of the Latino Rebels website. Marcela Garcia is a bilingual journalist and editorial writer for the Boston Globe. Coming up, Rosie the Riveter isn't just a cultural icon. She is the symbol for the millions of women who took over jobs left behind by men fighting in World War II. An annual event at our Charlestown Navy Yard aims to honor the legacy of these Rosies. An encore presentation of our story next. That's Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is a special encore segment of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. This part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra.
3: While all the girls attend the favorite cocktail bar Sipping dry martinis, munching caviar
1: there's
2: a girl
1: that's really putting them to shame, Rosie is her name. That's the 1942 song called Rosie the Riveter, honoring the symbol of the women who, during World War II, left the kitchen for factories and shipyards, like our own Charlestown Navy Yard. Next month, our local branch of the National Park Service will honor these so-called swans, the shipbuilding women of the Navy, in a weekend-long annual celebration at the Charlestown Navy Yard. The event is called "Rosies Invade the Yard. Before last year's event, I spoke with Maria Cole, Supervisory Park Ranger for the Boston National Historical Park, a 43-acre park that includes familiar landmarks like Bunker Hill, Faneuil Hall, and the Charlestown Navy Yard as well as Jocelyn Gould, who is a park ranger in the Division of Interpretation and Education at Boston National Historical Park. This is just such a fun and exciting event, and kudos to both of you for being a part of the group that fought this up. Last year was the first time in celebration of the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service nationwide, yes. and this is the second event. So, Maria, how did you happen to come to think about, hey, we at the Charlestown Navy Yard, Got a lot of the Rosie the Riveter history.
4: Well, 20 years ago, we used to do an education program about Rosie the Riveter, and that's kind of when we started the research and development into the story. And then when we lost an education specialist a few years back, that all kind of folded and went to sleep. And Jocelyn here deserves full credit for saying, hey, let's bring her back. And instead of doing it as an education program— where we have just a classroom at a time, let's blow it up into a great big party. So I give 100% credit to Jocelyn on this.
1: Okay. Well, Joc- <laughs> well Jocelyn, I'm going to give you the credit let, and <laughs> let you pick up. Um, 8,000 women worked at the Boston Navy shipyard during World War II. There were electricians, welders. That was of the nearly 19 million women who held jobs during World War II. So who were the women who worked here in our area that you know of? I mean, What you know about them?
3: So we have found about 800 800- names, and they are from all over the basic eastern part of Massachusetts. We have some from Lowell, Andover, and Lawrence that were coming down. We have some from New Bedford and Fall River, some from the Worcester area as well, but many of them are from the Charlestown Navy Yard neighborhood, and many of those families are still there to this day. They were all different ages. We found some teenagers who were coming into the workforce for the first time. About 18, 19. okay. And we found um, some of our elder ladies as well, grandmothers, who were coming out and working as well. Many of them, though, are going to be around the age of 25 to 30. Um, They are often coming into the workforce at this time because they are feeling patriotic, but especially because they have brothers and Fathers and husbands who are serving. And they decided that they wanted to help fill in those gaps and try and help them on the home front so that they could contribute to their safety and their effort on the uh, war fronts as well.
1: That's my guest, Jocelyn Gould. She's a park ranger in the Division of Interpretation and Education at the Boston National Historical Park. One of the things I learned in preparation for this conversation is that you don't tend to think of Rosie the Riveter, even though it's so obvious, as a propaganda campaign to get those women in. So let's listen to some of the newsreels that were out and about during that time to really encourage women, call out really for them to join the workforce in order to win the war.
3: It
0: takes human power to keep war factories going, and much of our manpower is going to war. More and more men are being called into the armed forces. Their jobs must be filled, and filled now. And who can fill them? You, you women. You are the ones who must fill them, who can give our boys what they need. If you need training, you can get it, and it's free. We must win this war, but we can't win this war unless you women take over the jobs that men are leaving, and you're needed right now.
4: That's pretty powerful, wouldn't you say, Maria? (laughs) It is. It absolutely is. And as Jocelyn was saying, a lot of these women were motivated by patriotism, and a lot of the propaganda, as you pointed out, used patriotism as a main motivator. Of course, there was an entire segment of women that didn't need motivation. They were in the working forces already, and what they really needed was just an opportunity to get a better paying job. And when factories and shipyards and airplane and tanks were being made, there were a entire segment of working class women who jumped at the opportunity to leave their jobs in service, to leave their jobs in laundromats, to leave their jobs in shops and go for the better paying war work, even though it was physically more demanding. Now, I know that you guys really
1: tried hard to find women who worked in the shipyard during that time and had some success, Jocelyn, with last year you had a woman who actually worked in the Navy Yards, right?
3: Yeah. Her name is Margaret, quote-unquote, Peggy Marigo, and she was the first qualified female welder to enter into the workforce at the Navy Yard. We found her through some really hard Google searching and following up on leads and chasing things down, and she's now living up in Vermont and came down for the event, and she was just shocked that her picture was everywhere And we had some of her quotes, and she had her own little groupie fan club of park (laughs) rangers who were kind of giving her hugs and saying how much they were interested in her story. And she was just floored by it. But she's a really, really awesome woman. And she enjoyed the work? She did. She um, said in her oral history that I found that even 30 years later, she would be walking by something that had welding on it, and she'd turn it over, and she'd judge the welding job that that person had done because she always wanted her work to be A-plus, she said. (laughs) She never wanted any soldier or sailor or anybody get hurt because she didn't do her job properly.
1: How old was she when she came last year?
3: She's 95, Mm. and she made the very long trek down, but it was a really cool event to have her at.
1: Well, we got some voices of real women like her from a documentary that was made in 1980 called The Life and Times of Rosie the Riveter. So here's Gladys Belcher of Richmond, California, describing her job and how much she liked it.
0: I have worked on the double bottoms clear up to the
4: crow's nest. There's only about three feet you have to sit down in there to work in the double bottoms, and you can't work in there very long because it gets pretty well filled up with smoke. And then you have to get out Welded on the deck, the big slabs of uh, iron that lay on the deck, and welded those together. Welding on the deck is really fun. I enjoy it every bit of it.
1: So what I thought was interesting looking at the documentary and listening to those women is, is you, and you've and you described Peggy, who was here and worked in the Charlestown Navy Yard and enjoyed the work. This woman just said she enjoyed it very much. That's Gladys Belcher from the documentary film The Life and Times of Rosie the Riveter. While the women came in, it wasn't so easy just to
4: walk in, Maria, and take over, even though they were calling for women to take over these jobs. Absolutely. you know. Places where we build ships tend to be very male-dominating environments, and there's a certain amount of machismo that is attached to this type of work. It requires a lot of strength and a lot of skill. And if a woman can do it, then what does that say about the men who have hinged their masculinity on their work? Suddenly, 18-year-old Peggy is doing the same job they do. One of the things that happened in the Boston Navy Yard was to... Break down the work. So it was a little bit more like assembly line work. And so maybe you were doing the same thing over and over and over again, and then you handed your piece off to, to somebody else. And, uh, and that was one of the ways that they worked with so many brand new people who were new to these skills. It was a way of making it a little bit easier. And then that in itself ended up causing some issues with a lot of the skilled workers who had gone through the entire apprenticeship journeyman procedure, and now this woman who's only got three months training is doing the same job I am. So there was definitely some tension. It does sound like a lot of the older men who were called back to work, so the first workers to actually go into the Navy Yard once we started the war, were older men who had lost their jobs and they were called back in. And they actually seemed to be a little bit more welcoming to these young women and kind of took them under their wings and, here, let me show you how to do this. And there was definitely some tension. You know, Peggy's got a story of uh, hearing some guys behind her looking at her work and inspecting her work, and she's kind of listening in, and she hears one of them say to the other, you know, she, she's going to put us out of a job. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, So there was definitely some tension
3: there. Yeah, and there was also issues of trust as well. When Peggy came in, they actually... Strip searched her every day, coming in and out. What? Yeah, they, they made her go behind a screen with a nurse, take off her clothes, and they would uh, search her with magnets to see if she was smuggling anything in or out. They would check her sandwiches. What would she be smuggling? Plans, materials. Oh, as if she were a spy or some sort.
1: Oh, I see. Okay. Exactly. All right. Yeah. Okay. And uh-huh.
3: uh, she said that went on for about two weeks, and she had a bodyguard as well. But bringing in the women improved some things as well. They made an order that you weren't allowed to swear or spit anymore, and they put doors on the bathrooms.
1: Yeah, hey, that would be nice. (laughs) Um, What what was the percentage, if you were able to know, of women versus men working at the Charlestown Navy Yard?
3: So there were 50,000 approximately workers at the height of World War II. Of those, about 8,000 were women. I'm not a mathematician, but that is not a lot uh, when you look at the large number of workers. But the Boston Navy Yard was one of the larger Navy Yards that employed people during World War II because it was used for not only shipbuilding but also repair. Mm -hmm. And since it was on a good latitude with England, you have a lot of ships coming over to get services done while they were doing the transatlantic convoys.
1: I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to a special encore episode of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Last year, I spoke with Maria Cole and Jocelyn Gould, park rangers at the Boston National Historical Park and at the Charlestown Navy Yard, about the event "Rosies Invade the Yard, which will take place again this year on Saturday, August 11th, and Sunday, August 12th. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. So here's the other thing that I learned in preparation for this discussion. You know, you forget that everybody was coming out of the Depression. So nobody had any money. So an opportunity to make salaries, like really good salaries, for men or women, for their families, was huge, Maria.
4: Absolutely. We see um, the home income just skyrocket during World War II as these economic opportunities open up to people And you're absolutely right that there were a lot of feelings during the Great Depression that only the head of household should be a breadwinner. And as a result, married women were often refused jobs during the Great Depression, even if their husband didn't have a job, because in theory, if there is a job, it should go to the head of household. And so it was a huge change, 180, to suddenly say, okay, now everyone in the country needs to go to work. Whether you're old, if you're a teenager, you can work on the weekends and after school. It was just a a huge flood of change. And one of the things the government did to try to not make inflation go crazy as a result was to really encourage people to take a portion of their pay in the form of war bonds. Mm. And so there were a lot of— So it's a double support for the war. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so there were a lot of people who were investing in war bonds— And Jocelyn has a really good story of a woman who used her war bonds to really change her life after the war was over. Yeah. Let me remind my guests that you're Maria Cole, Supervisory Park Ranger
1: for the Boston National Historical Park. Go ahead, Jocelyn. So
3: in our searching to find these women and their names, we actually have a really great resource called the Shipyard News, which is the in-yard newspaper. And it's really a raw, raw look at how awesome our employees are. So it has things about the bowling team and the boxing matches that are going on. And to get these war bond drives going, they would have a lot of people do performances. So people like James Cagney would come and perform Mm. and encourage people to buy war bonds. Other people, one man did a flip every day at lunchtime. And he did it for about 30 days straight. And apparently people were buying bonds kind of like jump rope for heart kind of thing Mm -hmm. in support of that. And they had competitions between the Boston and Portsmouth Navy Yards in the 1940s to try and encourage people to do this. So Mildred Isaacs, who was an African-American woman working in the Navy Yard, was featured in 1944. And she had been working in the yard for two years, so she started in 1942. And she was one of the people who was kind of bandied about as this great example of an employee because she was buying all these war bonds and she had a really great reason to do so. She was already a college graduate from Boston College and she was going to use the money she told them to pay for her graduate studies Mm. at Boston College and she got a master's of social work. We later found her as a employee of the city of Boston. Wow. So she was able to really parlay this into, you know, a step up and out of the only working at home or not even having a job and being able to go out and continue working with the public.
1: Now, Maria had mentioned earlier that some of the people working in the factories were people already working. You just hit on a point I wanted to make, which is that there was such as it was. I mean, we're still talking about diversity today. Diversity in a way that might not be expected in a number of these factories and at the shipyard. You found three Chinese-American women, Jocelyn, as well, who worked in the shipyard.
3: The first one that we hit upon was a woman named Alice Yek, She was the first Chinese-American baby born in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and that made the front page of the newspaper. (laughs) And then her family came down. They settled in Chinatown here in Boston and had a restaurant there. And she was the first Chinese-American employee at the Navy Yard. Unfortunately, Alice and I share a very common issue. She was also short. And couldn't really reach a lot of the levers and the the foot pedals and everything. So while she didn't stay in the Navy Yard very long, she stayed with war work and went to the Gillette plant, which Ah. had been changed from personal hygiene to uh, doing war work for the military. We also found a woman named Pauline Chen, who was featured for also participating in these war bond drives. They said that her Christmas tree was decorated with war bonds that she bought for her relatives as Christmas presents. And then there was also Minnie Wong, who was uh, nicknamed the Fenway Farmerette. Wow. (laughs) Uh, And she was held up as an example of awesomeness for having the biggest and best corn out of her victory garden. And she had a plot at the Fenway victory garden, which is the oldest one in the United States and still is used today.
1: Well, when this campaign got going and a lot of these women were now working, despite that some of the tension with the men and doing some of the activities that you've just described, it was really interesting to me to hear the variety of jobs that they were doing. I, we found this newsreel. This explains how women were encouraged to join the wartime effort, but it also described the various jobs that women acquired during the war. Here is the office of the supervisor of women employees. Are they doing all right? Beyond anything anyone ever dreamed of. They're doing something in almost every
3: department in the plant. And I don't mean just clerks and checkers. We have women engineers and oilers in the boiler room. Women
1: repair experts. Women work at the oil mines above ground.
0: Along the unloading docks. And our private railroad
1: tracks. And women shipbuilders. There you go, women shipbuilders. Maria, you know, you've been talking about how a lot of this history just has never been unearthed, and you think you know why. <laughs>
4: <laughs> uh, oh, why has it not been unearthed? Well, there, I would say it continues to be unearthed. Okay. I think that's a better way to say it. One of the reasons why I think is part of it is it's a 20th century history, and a lot of people don't want to recognize it as history yet. But now, 75 years later, we're losing. We have lost a lot of the people who who have lived through this. And now the people who are left were very young, children and teenagers and maybe in their 20s. And then another reason is because it's about women. Women seldom make the textbooks. Well-behaved women don't make history, right? That's right. <laughs> Laurel Ulrich at <laughs> Harvard. I give her credit for coming up with that. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, they're, yeah. they're, a woman's, woman's name was only supposed to appear in the newspaper on three occasions, her birth, her marriage, and her death, right? And a lot of these women haven't been in the newspapers. They're in the Shipyard News. But even so, you know, we've managed to name about 800 of them, which is only 10 percent of them. And that has taken a lot of effort and a lot of research and a lot of piling through not just the Shipyard News, but the Boston Globe and the Guardian and kind of piecing it all together. And Jocelyn and Polly have done a really fantastic job doing that sort of thing.
1: I bet you a lot of the—maybe some of the families that you contacted, they didn't even know that their relatives had been a part of this World War II effort.
4: Absolutely. And a lot and a lot of people don't talk about their World War II experiences. So just recently, one of my brand-new seasonal rangers went out for a tour of our ship, USS Cass and Young, and it was just as a training tour and she went out with one of our more experienced rangers and she comes back in and she goes, oh, I have to call my grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, Yes, you do need to call your grandpa. And so even within our own families, we don't necessarily, you know, know the stories. I mean, I know my grandpa worked for GE and I know he went around from plant to plant to plant fixing the GE equipment in each of the plants. And in order to do that, he had two gas ration stickers. But what he actually did, I don't know, mm. you know. And so we definitely see people, you know, just not bothering to ask their parents and their grandparents and their great aunts and uncles. So what did you do? Well, Maria, and both of you can answer this. What happened to a lot of these women? Did
1: that, You know, I understand the tension in the shipyard and in the factories at least at the beginning. But now these women have skills. You mentioned, the Jocelyn, you mentioned the woman who left there who was too short for the Navy Yard but went on to Gillette. Do we have any sense of what percentage of women went on to do similar kinds of work or at least stay in the workforce or those who just returned home and didn't talk about it until now?
3: (laughs) One of the quotes that we have is that the men came home and we had a new job to do, which was making babies. Mm. A lot of these women, they're getting married in 44, 45, when you start to see the you know, victory over Europe start, and then you know, it becomes evident that Japan is not going to be holding on for much longer, and people start making plans for the future. Uh, and a lot of the women said that they were happy to give these jobs back to these veterans, these men who had them before and who, through their service, deserved those jobs. But it meant that they had to go someplace else. And most of these women will go back into the homes. But many of them are going to go and they're going to get college degrees like Mildred. They're going to start working as secretaries. They're, they're the ones who start to kind of tap at that glass ceiling that's in civilian life. And they'll start tapping at it and making cracks in it so that eventually their children are the ones who will really benefit from their efforts and be able to come into the workforce as equals more so.
4: I'd also like to point out it wasn't just women who lost these wardrobes. So we talk about, you know, Boston Naval Shipyard having 50,000 employees. Well, by 1950, there were not 50,000 employees working in the shipyards and repairing ships. And then for all of those uh, workers who were in factories, like Gillette, that had retooled for wartime, the immediate reaction was to shut down the factory entirely and then retool for, for peacetime production. And when they hired back, the factory itself had gone through a whole series of, of automation And so there just weren't as many positions in peacetime as there were during wartime. And Rosie the Riveter and all of her um,
1: real-life women were uh, uh, so much a part of all of that history and, and continue to be. And I thank you both for bringing it to light for all of us. And I just have a note about the Park Ranger service in general. This is just my personal note. I have learned so much on tours Led by Park Service Rangers. I just can't say enough about how much you learn on all of the the historic sites here in Boston, so people should really take advantage of it. So I'm very delighted to uh, bring some uh, That's light great to, to hear. this. Thank oh, you so much. I'm uh, wonderful, learned so much. So thank you both for joining me today.
4: Thank you, thank you for having us.
1: Maria Cole is a supervisory park ranger for the Boston National Historical Park, and Jocelyn Gould is a park ranger in the Division of Interpretation and Education at Boston National Historical Park. This has been an encore presentation, but the 2018 Rosie's Invades the Yard Weekend is scheduled for Saturday and Sunday, August 11th and 12th. Check details at the National Park Service website. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show links to stories we discussed today and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org/utr. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar@wgbh.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugertz. Andrea Asuaje, and Francisca Monahan produced this show. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.